think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 56, the 57th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. And we're back after a long reprieve. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a great start. Uh, we are back after a couple of weeks' absence, uh, due in part to, to my vacation, to Etienne's not recording an episode while I was gone, and then uh, sort of just being busy for the last week and a half or so. Uh, I, don't, which, I don't know how to operate a computer. No, evidently, yeah, that that did seem to be the case. So, um, we are back with a, a new sitting of uh, the federal parliament beginning in Ottawa this week. Yes, not, not a new session, lest the fun police come knock on your door. Yes. In fact, I, I'm sad you said that right now because now I have to get this out of the way. Uh, we looked it up, and this is, will actually be if this continues. Well, if Justin Trudeau, which it, is, which it will, which it seems like this point, like there's no reason for it not to. If Justin Trudeau does not prorogue Parliament, uh, it will be the first ever majority full-length Parliament uh, with only one session. So that is kind of fascinating as trivia. Uh, there have been previous one-session parliaments, but they have been under minorities and have not lasted their full terms, uh, typically. So. And tell me, what is the... Give, give me some trivia here. What's the session, or what's the most longest, number of yeah. sessions of a given parliament? Well, it kind of... Longevity will get you there, because it's Robert Borden's wartime World War One government slash parliament uh, that wins that particular distinction. <laughs> so... Having seven. seven. And then there are a bunch of them that had six. But they also had a majority, or they had a government for six years, was yes, it? Yes, and they sort of so. like then, like, sort of stole an election and all that. So it was so, uh, sort of cheating. Like, yes. Like that president who was president for 10 years or whatever it was. Which one? You should know this. Like in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. He won every time. Yeah, Are but it was, it was prior to term limits, is my point. Yeah, well, it's yeah. not cheating. It's just. Well, it's, it's cheating in terms of rec- record keeping purposes. Okay. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, like, like the the bar has changed. Yes. yes. Well, I mean they've made the bo- the record bar so low in the U.S. that's not really fun anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. really easy record to exactly. To get to. To, well, I mean, you know, depends. Um, okay, not to get too sidetracked. So if, if if George Bush could do it, anyone can. That is, I mean, that is terrifyingly true. Yes. <laughs> um, new session, new us, new part, new. Well, no, not it's not a new problem. Not a new session. Oh, fuck god damn it okay yeah god, <laughs> we're so bad at this guys um yeah so what did you think of the first week back um it was interesting i watched uh the pre-game press conferences uh yeah, that the had. I, I keep missing them uh mm-hmm. the conservatives had theirs followed shortly thereafter by the ndp i can't say i watched the block who who can we have a round of applause here the block are back together yeah quebec debout has become quebec flaccid <laughs> <laughs> the get the gangs all back together. I will I will go to my grave insisting that Quebec de Boo means Quebec erect under uh, under new leadership. There's uh, there's a new party in town. The the People's Party is here to play. Oh Jesus! Yeah, we'll get into that later. Um. So it's I mean it's a whole new world from the Parliament that uh, we left yeah. mere mere months ago. Was the CCF in Parliament? Uh, yes, in June? it was. It was. Okay. Yeah. So the big boy parties are sort of laying out kind of their election pitch and starting to sort of ramp up what's going to be their kind of final uh, pitch, well, pitch to voters and also their, from the part of the opposition parties, their, their final salvo against the government and the government has a final sort of, you know, real six, seven months of sitting time to really get legislation through if it needs to and make its mark and really cement what its pitch to voters is going to be. So how did parties do this week on those things? Do you think? 
Um, so, I mean, I think it's difficult. I actually haven't seen that much attention paid to sort of the ongoings of Parliament. Um, I would note that Trudeau was in the House all four days, or four out of five days yeah. this week, doing question period, which yeah. is also somewhat record-breaking in its own right. Yeah, you got to give him a hand for, like, showing up there every day to get just harangued um in in this particular instance yes and in others he's you know, less present yeah um as many as many pms are yeah um i mean the liberals came out with tpp tpp comprehensive and progressive I, I scowl and eye roll <laughs> um came out with the ratification of tpp as sort of their number one priority first day back yep um, they're strongly supported by the conservatives there. The NDP are really the party opposing it. Um, in a dream world, it would have received unanimous consent and sort of been pushed through. But for the sake of the auto sector and the dairy sector, so Jagmeet tells me this must be resisted. Um, but the liberals quickly went to time allocation, um, which was i mean i'm not going to complain here i i think it's good i think it needs to get through so uh god godspeed little bill yeah and we've talked a lot about the cptpp in the past with uh well not really actually i guess we just had one episode that was very devoted to it with um angela McEwen from the clc joining us as a guest i don't remember the number of that episode but it was titled david ricardo is indestructible phylactery so you can find that one back <laughs> in the archives Christ. um yeah it was a good one uh i don't really share your point of view on the cbtv but we'll not get into that right now um so for the first week back i think that you know people are sort of setting a tone for what people can kind of expect from the party going forward the ndp were very visibly connected or trying to connect their questions to sort of constituent concerns uh trying to i think humanize a lot of the issues they sometimes struggle to uh, make concrete for voters uh, following in the the esteemed footsteps of the reform party yeah honestly it really pioneered some of this uh, yeah it's not it's not a new new trick or you know strategy but certainly like it you know we'll see if it works i think people have had sort of mixed success with it in the past uh the conservatives i frankly and this is this is might be my partisan bias talking but you know then again I have no problem with people being aggressive in question period. I think it's good to really like go after the government on these things. That's your job as opposition in question period is to is to make a splash and to really go after them sure. on issues of mismanagement, of bad decisions, and that kind of thing. I think that's that's worthwhile and that definitely has its place. Uh, I found them kind of gross this week. Uh, they spent most of I think Thursday's question period going after the Veterans Affairs Minister for seems to be a case where they had a uh, someone who was claiming veterans benefits who had, had committed murder and it, I mean obviously a very bad situation but like frankly I don't think that the minister was involved in making the decision to send that guy checks and frankly the people working at veterans affairs either had no knowledge of that or they were following departmental protocols that they had you know no real choice but to follow I thought the whole, like, piling on for the entire question period about this when a simple, like, yeah, we're, thank you for making us aware of this, we're going to address it, would have been, like, fine. I think that that, for me, was, like, a kind of, I don't know. Like, I, I don't really think it's, like, beyond the pale or anything, but I found it to be just, like, very lurid and, like, really using a c very sad situation and, you know, if someone's murder and this guy's, you know, PTSD or whatever that I don't know what he was claiming exactly, but, like... It just seems like not a situation that you, you, anyone would really want aired at like great length and volume. So putting 
Uh, I'm not going to address that directly. Um, no, and let me make a what I, let me make a broader point from that. I think it's that the conservative party plans to be quite, quite, quite aggressive and very much aimed at their the the reddest meat part of their red meat base. What I what I for the w- next year. What I would say about that strategy is that often the conservative strategy in question period, and I, th- and I think it's worked well, has been to be more cohesive and targeted. Yeah. Like, then, focus on one issue with everybody instead yes. of... Yes. Yeah. I, I well, remember... Well, summer failure was the... Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> the the buzzword that's come out in sort of this ner- many people early... Are, many people are calling it that again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is literally what they said. It, many it, people it, are calling it a summer failure, Mr. I, I've seen it. It's just on everyone's lips. I hear it I yep. hear it at the local McDonald's. I was at the Sobeys the other day, and people were saying, it's really been a summer failure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People talk like that. No, true. What, yeah. what I was going to say is, in watching Question Period, I, I can't remember what issue this was around. It was one of the ethics issues, or perhaps more now, or um, Trudeau during the Uncon, but I, I remember watching Question Period, and the conservatives were hammering away on the biggest ethics issue of the story. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> ethics story, ethics issue, whatever you want to call it, of the day. And then it would bridge over to sort of a backbench NDP, and they would ask some question about, like, the cultural industries in Quebec or, like, some very, very niche issue. Yeah. And, like, at the end of the day, it, it really depends, like, what's... A lot, a lot of people ask this, like, what's the point of question period? Um, is there benefit to asking the same question again and again and again and getting the same answer? And generally, I would argue yes. I Depends think, on the question, I think, is the, the real, like, that's the galaxy brain answer. No, but I, I think if an MP or if a party, particularly the NDP or the Conservatives, spend all of their questions on a single issue, I think the odds, I think it sort of has sway over journalists. And oh, the for, odds no, that, I, t- I the totally... The odds that journalists yeah. are going to write about I that totally issue. I totally agree with that. It just, I think you have to be strategic about what you choose that issue sure. to be, because otherwise... You are hyper-focusing on one thing, and you're not focusing on anything else. And I think for the conservatives, sure. focusing on a story where the bureaucrats were probably following the rules and the minister had nothing to do with the decision is probably not that good a decision. But, it, I mean, the other point is that you can fundraise off it, right? I'm sure they sent out an email that was like, rabid liberal dogs giving money to cop killer. I don't know. I actually haven't got the fundraise. You haven't gotten the rabid I, liberal dogs? No, I just yeah. haven't been getting... I don't know if I unsubscribed for, from all of them during, this, during I mean, the leadership or not. That would be a smart thing to do. But yeah. I feel like I'm not getting the emails anymore. And I, I used to get sad. So, so many. Is Allah planning to kill the Jews? <laughs> was Stephen Blaney's memorable subject line. No, I don't think that's what it was. It was exactly that, yes. I don't think so. Hmm. We're gonna check. <laughs> Dear listeners, we have checked, and unfortunately, I was completely wrong. He said, should Allah kill all the Jews? My mistake, and my apologies to Etienne. I'm going to take the technical victory here. Yeah, you, you went on points on this one. <laughs> um, anything else about the new the new setting? Um, no. I mean, the NDP has, obviously, the, the shadow of a by-election hanging over them. I think that's important to address. And we were, we were just talking about this and trying to work out the, the, the calendar mm. math here. And we think it is theoretically possible that the liberals basically don't call the by-election in time. So they have six months from the date of the resignation of Kennedy Stewart. So did, actually did just he, he resign this ago, week? A yeah. couple days ago, yeah. Um, and it, it's six months from the day, so that would take us into March. And then from there, uh, assuming a dissolution of parliament in 
you know, July or August, you could very feasibly call your uh, election date for either after that or, like, right before dissolution, basically. Well, I mean, call it late June when Parliament rises. Yeah. So, like, that that's it. Like, yeah. no one is going to He's run. He's not going to be seated. There's never going yeah. to be a by-election, yeah. like, June 31st. Yeah. Like, so, that uh, is theoretically possible. Uh, but, Etienne, you had some comments about that. I mean, I think it's, yes. So, well, Justin Trudeau could rag the puck and run out the clock on this by-election, I think they're likely to call it, you know, a fair bit earlier than that. There have been stories, I think it was by Iveson and others. Um, John Iveson of the National Post. Yes. For um, those who are not huge mega nerds. <laughs> um, that have sort of talked about where the liberal... Uh, brain trust is at on this and it seems to be to not chance uh, Jagmeet's removal leader via the, I think it's the 25th amendment in the NDP constitution Do we have amendments? I'm not even sure Um, No, they would just become part of the regular constitution Yeah, it's kind of weird that they do that eh? Uh, Well, Bill of Rights, what can you do? Yeah Um, So, I think they're more inclined to get Jagmeet you know, give him a bit of a hard time, but this conversation was occurring mostly around whether or not the liberals would guarantee him a win. Yes, well, there was some and, and of, not run a candidate. Yeah, of them honoring the quote unquote leaders' gentlemen's agreement or whatever they call it. Yeah, which pact or trust or yeah. I mean, the, the um, NDP have been very clear that they would not do this in their own case, so I don't. Yeah, I think it would be very strange for the liberals to do that. Yeah, but it, it's because the liberals, I think, genuinely fear perhaps putting him at. Too much of a disadvantage. It's it's this this is sort of the interesting dynamic at play where you know the conservatives are wanting to. <laughs> it's sort of hilarious. The conservatives are wanting to pump up Jagmeet like I'm on the verge of going to volunteer for him, <laughs> and uh, the liberals are wanting to not hurt him too badly. So I mean, everyone's his friend right now. Yeah. Like literally everyone. It's if, like being in last place in Monopoly. If, <laughs> if only uh, he could get anyone to donate to his cause. Yes, well, we will see. We will see what happens with that. Um, but that is interesting, and I think that dynamic is going to be hanging over the NDP for the next six months as they sort of have the, a leader uh, from outside the House trying to use you know, the, the, their House presence to bolster his own uh, in a by-election. So I, that'll be kind of an interesting situation and something to watch for when you, you observe Parliament, as I'm sure most of you do. Yeah, in watching his uh, initial press conference, it was interesting to see how quickly a lot of the questions from journalists turned towards his sort of personal situation rather than the message. Mm. Um, They were asking him about whether or not he was going to buy a house in Burnaby. Oh, you're renting an apartment. How can you afford to rent an apartment? Have you signed a lease yet? Like, what exact state? Like, have you found a realtor? Do you like, love it, it the was, windows? It, yeah. <laughs> it basically goes, like, are you looking for a, a 3.5 or a 4? You think that the faucet in the kitchen's a bit much? See, if anyone, anyone got that 3.5 or 4, I'm talking about the bizarre way in which... Quebec people. Quebec oh, it's why and me, a cat and me, yeah. Nothing is a cat. I've never understood the system. Toi and me is a one bedroom. Quebecois people rate their apartments on like a five point no, system. No, they don't rate, it's the size. It's, it's never really made any sense it's to me. It's not a rating. It's not like stars. Jesus. Anyway. Um, so that that is the new setting, uh, which probably will not become a new session, uh, as, as we said earlier. Uh, so we'll pivot to the other really big story in federal politics of the last month or so, uh, which is a new party uh, being born from uh, the womb of the internet, mostly. <laughs> uh, and that is Maxim Bernier's 
uh, People's Party of Canada. So, an interesting experiment, which we will see uh, how that turns out. But basically, Maxime Bernier, famed for being very libertarian, uh, sort of marrying his libertarian small government ethos uh, that ends right next to the border where that has to be highly militarized and we have to prevent anybody from coming in. So let me make a few points on Maxime Bernier here. Sure, go ahead. Um, First and foremost, the last time we talked about this, it was just before convention and I said something along the line and uh, we were were talking about the Maxime Bernier situation. I said something along the lines of, I don't think Maxime Bernier, uh, his actions will pose an existential threat to the party. And I... Fully, fully stand behind that comment. I think that is probably fair. I do not think Maxime Bernier uh, and his party represent much of a threat to the party at all. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of overestimating of how strong um, well, okay. his eventual party is. Wait, I, wait, don't go ahead. Let me let me okay, finish. Let ahead. me finish several points here before very, very well. before you interject. Very well. Um, so first and foremost, let's talk about polling. Um, initial polling was, would you consider voting for Max? And his number was like, I don't even remember exactly. 12, 14 percent? I, I think it was higher. I think it was 17 or 18 percent. Maybe, eh, maybe 14. Um, but on the would you consider voting, that was about half of the Green parties. would you consider. It, it's just such a soft question that yeah. it lends itself to being inflated. Sure. Um, more recent polling by Abacus did sort of personal leaders, popularity. Maxime Bernier had some of the highest negatives and some of the lowest positives. I think only 8% of people sort of found him agreeable or liked him or whatever the... Shows uh, Canadians have good taste. Whatever it was. Um, I think there's substantial issues in terms of regional politics uh, or a regional base, regional concentration. Yes, because people keep saying Quebec, but we've talked about this at length before. Libertarianism is not interesting to people from Quebec, uh, but we'll see if rampant xenophobia is i think there's probably more of a precedent there uh that said the uh rampant xenophobia party is crashing in the provincial polls which i predicted by the way on august 23rd on twitter so (laughs) right before the election started so props to me for that um but no i think you're right like there is i think like obviously this is like a substantial overlap with like the Derek fildebrandt party message of like libertarianism plus like some red meat for cultural conservatives, um, especially with regards to diversity and immigration. Um, but I don't know how big... I mean, like, here's my take on this, is that ultimately I think what happens with these kinds of parties is that they get overcovered. I think media are really fascinated by them for a reason that kind of escapes me. Uh, you saw, like, the exact same thing with, uh, you know, I, Trump comparisons are kind of overwrought, but, like, UKIP. Right, UKIP was dramatically overcovered sure. compared to its polling and sort of like actual impact. But what they were able to parlay that into is a ton of oxygen for the issues they talked about, which is mostly immigration and, in their case, um, you know, leaving the European Union. So I think that I think Luke Savage pointed this out on Twitter of, of uh, Press Progress and the Broad Institute that. It, their best case scenario is something like UKIP, where basically they they don't win a lot of seats, if any. But they're able to really hijack the public policy conversation in an immigration direction because media just seems to be so fascinated by covering them. Sure. I, I don't concede that that... I, I would concede that that's possible. Yeah. Um, to finish my list... Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I hijacked you there. Um, so, the, the other challenges. So, lack of regional base. Tech. 
Um, the next one I would say is in terms of staff and uh, the number, so there have been a couple articles now, the Hill Times are the first one trying to find out who, if anyone, had uh, gone over to support Max. Yeah, this is kind of a fascinating one, I think. And the answer, as best I can deduce, is effectively nobody. On the day that he sort of flipped, um, everyone started, I mean, media started looking around to all of the supporters of everyone who had supported Maxime in leadership, um, perhaps most notably Tony Clement, and Tony Clement was among the first to sort of uh, step yes. back from Alex it. Alex Nuttall has been in his fortress of solitude, as far as I can tell, though. Um, Alex Nuttall had a more tepid statement. Uh, his was more along the lines of, I was elected as a conservative, so I'm going to continue to serve my... Uh, constituents as a conservative, and the man only won by like sixty-eight votes or something. So like he's Fair not enough. he's not in a position to be flexing much. Yeah. Though um, so he is rather bul- bulky. But he's his a big boy. <laughs> his uh, his statement wasn't the st- as strong as it could have been. Sure. Um, but among he was then taken out later and shot. Among the statements of all conservatives, his was by far sort of the weakest. Um, no one else really seemed to be contemplating. Even biting a little bit. Yeah. yeah, even in the tiniest. So, but staff, I think, is almost a more interesting question. So, yeah, let's let's talk about staff. Um, there have been journalists who've reached out to various staff members, notably Emerus, uh, Emerus Grafe, who worked on sort of his email writing during leadership. Yeah. Um, he said he hadn't worked or worked or done anything for Maxime in over a year. Um, Corey Tanaik uh, was on his campaign and then went on to Doug Ford and one or two days later had an op-ed um, mm-hmm. standing behind Andrew Shear. Yeah. Um, none of the staff that I know who worked on Max's campaign were in had any desire to go over. Mm. Um, it's the point where I can only think of one... I only know of one person... Um, who's gone to Max, and that was his press secretary during um, his leadership campaign, who was a, frankly a fairly junior, yeah. um, fairly junior individual. Um, in terms of like high-profile people, um, you've had others like uh, Kevin O'Leary um, step back, yeah, and also write op-eds in, in support of Sheer and sort of unity has. O'Leary done that? Yeah, he oh, has. He, he was initially eyed it because he'd thrown his support behind Max in leadership, but his op-ed essentially said, um, you know, I, I supported Unity. I wanted a party that could take down Trudeau, and while I may find some of Max's ideas interesting, taking down Trudeau is the, the primary objective. Um, I think in other areas of the country where Max, like, maybe is counting on support, like Derek Fildebrandt's Freedom figur- Conservative Party. Figuratively and literally in the wilderness right now. And Albertans also have a reasonably... Is he coaching again? <laughs> also have a reasonably uh, recent memory of a divided conservative party. So I don't yeah. I don't think his Alberta base, which is where Max is actually the most popular... Yes, the Alberta from um, Quebec, as he puts it. <laughs> ...will be all that uh, enthusiastic about the prospects. So I haven't... Uh, um, I don't obviously have the conservative networks that you do, so I mean, I don't know, but... One thing that I think we, we've talked before about is how staff are curiously... Uh, hard to destroy in the sense that they will sort of keep coming back despite substantial failures on on actual competence issues or you know losing big elections that kind of thing but one thing you do not come back from is disloyalty 
And I think for conservatives, this is a one-way ticket, right? Like, if Maxime Bernier tomorrow decides he folds this up, makes a profuse apology to Andrew Scheer, he probably gets to rejoin caucus. I think probably. No. You don't think so? No. You think if he completely unconditional surrender, I, I was misguided, I apologize, Andrew Shearer is the best leader to take us forward, you don't think Shearer brings him back in? Zero chance. Really? Zero. Okay. I disagree with that. But at any rate, the point being... You're wrong. The, I, okay, walk me through your logic on this. Um, I mean, the caucus may have well been ready to kick Max out prior to his... Uh, exit. Yes, but he doesn't come in exactly where he was. He comes in chastened and humiliated, right? Like, this is a different kind of situation. No. Like, you could give him the dunce cap if they wanted to. And no. they could sit in the corner during caucus. I, I don't, don't I don't think so. I think it's, it's too far gone. I think Max's path back in um, becomes at a leadership race. If, if he so chooses, he can then sign up for a membership yeah. and run okay. as a member of the party sure. I, I think that's so, an appeal to the grassroots i think that is his way in not any sort sure. of appeal to i fundamentally think that if he wanted to really and like substantially abased himself before the leader like a good old kowtow yeah. he would probably get back in but whatever yeah. uh my point was that for staff that is like in no universe an option i think like if you if you hop on another party's bandwagon especially one that's a split off from yours you are you are never coming back so I think that's probably a substantial uh, barrier. So a I, lot of staff who are maybe sympathetic to what Bernie is talking about, because frankly, like the staff tend to be the more ideologically driven people, um, and might be interested in the kind of message Bernie is talking about, if not interested in his like personal leadership qualities, which they may be more closely affiliated I, or more closely knowledgeable of than American Fell Party members. I think I largely disagree with your thesis here. Okay, on you, virtually every point of it. Okay, go ahead. Um, the thesis I've sort of been working on for a long time is actually that elected officials are less resilient than staff members to things like um, changing loyalty. I, I mean, less on loyalty. Yeah, that's, perhaps, that's perhaps, exactly perhaps. my point. Yeah. No, no, no. Let me let me finish. Okay. Uh, incompetence, other you know, run-ins with the law, things like that. Yeah. That elected officials tend to get jettisoned more easily than staff implicated in comparable situations. Yeah. But let me provide you an example of a staff of a member of the Conservative Party with sort of the changing loyalties question looming over, and that of course is Dimitri Soudes. Yes. Um, Dimitri effectively went to the Liberal Party to help his Eve Adams, yes. Uh, partner um, Eve Adams with her Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get, uh, was it Marco Mendicino she was running against? Uh, yeah, something like um, that. With her run, and then has, I, I think, broadly has sort of come back in... Yeah, but is anyone going to trust him at the same level he was at in, ever Into again? the fold? No, I mean, no. But, no, but if you're a young... But that is also for the reasons he left. Yeah. That was before he left the yeah. party, those issues were already I out. think if you're a young staffer, too. And, like, uh, Sudas, too, like, I think is almost more, like... A senior political figure, and the, the, he was what? Like, was he chief of staff? Or? He was executive director. Executive director of the, of the party. party. Yeah, and like, I think at that point, like, you have more bridges to burn before you run out of bridges. I think if you're more junior, uh, you don't, and you lose. Like, it, people don't have as much built up goodwill. It's easier for you to just like, you're done, right? Like after like, if you leave, people are just gonna be like, okay, well, that's you know. I think there are still reasonable examples 
where this is not the case. I'm sure they exist, Ad, but I Adam, just think it's... Adam Carroll. I don't, I don't know the name. Vicky Leaks. But he didn't leave out of this... He left because he had done something, quote-unquote, inappropriate. Sure, sure. Not, it's, not, not, it's not the same situation at all. Uh, I think it speaks more to your first point, which is that they can recover from, you know, quote-unquote, scandal. But I don't think that's a case for, for disloyalty, recovering from disloyalty at all. In fact, like, he basically took a hit for the team and then just came back a couple years later. If okay, anything, it's the opposite. Okay, wait, wait. Can I put a pin in this conversation yes, for a minute? You, to go, you, may, you may put a pin in it. To go back to the broader Maxine Bernier conversation. Yes, let's go back to the broader Maxine Bernier conversation. Um, I just want to make two other points, at least. Sure. Um, so we mentioned Eric Fildebrandt, and I don't even know what his party's called. The Freedom Conservative Party. Freedom, of course it is. Yes. Um, the Freedom Conservative Party. The Fry Corps, for sure. Um, so when, when Fildebrandt left and started this party, he took the position... That he would not run um, member or would not run candidates in ridings where the conservatives were strong or were Other weak, rather. Yeah. Basically, if the NDP had a ch- shot at winning, he wouldn't run anyone. Correct. So the, the idea is that in ridings with 70% conservative vote and 30% NDP vote, if you run two conservative parties, they're both going to get 35. Well, one will get 35 plus percent yeah. and a conservative party will win. And the idea of this is not to risk the possibility of the NDP winning. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was sort of seen as a gesture of goodwill of putting having the priorities in order of beating the NDP first and of getting his own party elected second. Mm-hmm. Maxine Bernier did not follow this Mm-mm. philosophical direction nope. at all. Not said, I want to challenge all 338 um, and I don't care um, if I step on conservative toes. So I, I think just that difference in approach is worth noting. Yeah. Um, and the goodwill that buys you and how conservatives feel about vote splitting versus getting uh, Justin yeah. Trudeau. I mean, I think the, the political universe of Alberta politics lends itself much more where you do have a big block of completely safe conservative seats. You do have some in, in federal politics, but I think they're all in the prairies, basically, like with a couple exceptions elsewhere. And you would like mark yourself out as basically a complete sideshow if you're going to do that as Max and Bernays party. Yes, but frankly, as Max, those are the only ridings across Canada where you stand a single oh, 100%. hope of yeah, hundred percent. But the, so. then you don't look like a national party, right? If that's the only places you're even running, he's clearly ambitious enough to do this, and he wants to go all the way with it. Which, like, fair enough. So I think it would be a disservice to his idea if he were going to, like, stay where he already is strong. Okay, one last point on Max. Sure. Go ahead. The way he left. I think he screwed up. Um, it was the day that convention was kicking off, and he threw his own little press conference for himself in Ottawa, um, where he announced it and to try, I presume, to take the thunder out of um, the convention sales, and then he tweeted mean things the entire time. Very high school. I actually found that as a rather lackluster strategy. Um one, I think he would have been better off had he fully martyred himself by being ideologically or like, you know, presenting all his views until the party voted to kick him out. Yeah. Or caucus voted to kick him out. I think that would have made a more compelling narrative than you can't fire me, I quit. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I would have done, and I mean, um, you know, I'm glad he didn't do this, but I'm surprised there wasn't more disruption of the convention by Maxime supporters. Yeah. 
In fact, there was virtually none. There was a bit of a tussle over uh, the supply management, the supply management motion. Well, and there was a couple like interviews with angry members who were like, "I'm going to join Max and Bernier's party." Yeah, yes. but you didn't have a lot of like, for example, at plenary when you have you know fifteen hundred to three thousand people in a room together. Yeah. And you have these open mics that are available to talk about any yeah. policy. Oh, like, trust me, I've been to NDP conventions. Yeah, know how this goes. But yeah. you did not have people from Max's, like from Max's camp, going up and being like, "Yeah, People's Party 2019 into the mic." Yeah, like there, there wasn't that sort of base level. Maybe it's just not in. Uh, conservatives to do this sort of protest, the magic word, <laughs> yeah, this sort of civil disobedience or protest, Oof. but but there was even worse, there was disobedience, n- there was none of that um, at play. There was a couple disgruntled people complaining on the floor, yeah, um, but like that was it, yeah. Uh, one point I want to make is uh, I think one of the headlines in recent weeks for them has been uh, how much trouble they're having keeping racist content off their Facebook discussion groups, which I mean. Who would who whom would have foreseen such an event? Oh, this reminds me of my last point. Go ahead. And two, actually, two last points on Max. I, I've been thinking a lot. Just about, keep coming up with new ones. I've been thinking a lot about Max. Um, two others. You're joining the Max and Bernie. Um, one is how badly the uh, leadership uh, debates are going to have to be gerrymandered now. They're not doing them. What do you mean? For what you're talking... Oh, no, you no. mean for... Okay, 2019 the, yeah, yeah. federal... Well, I had the beautiful uh, vision, uh, or vision, the sight of Elizabeth May saying that he shouldn't be included. Which yes. Was she very, very rich. Trying, trying to edge him out based on yeah. a formula that includes only in, greens. Yeah, exactly. Very but magically. excludes... <laughs> yeah, like it makes no With sense. With national relevance, 338 candidates, and a seat... Uh, under, El- elected, yeah, elected under a seat, yeah, whatever. Yeah, elected under the banner yes. that you hold. Which of your course seat. she did not have one, like she did not have one of those MPs until she herself was elected, despite garnering two floor crossers in the two previous parliaments. Yes, uh, and not running full slates of candidates, I don't think, in two thousand six or two thousand eight. Someone can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but I don't think they ended up running completely national campaigns in either of those two elections. Okay. I guess just national. They're so nationally relevant uh, that that counts for all three. Of course. My my last point on Max is uh, a lesson from the Wild Rose. So in the 2011 election uh, in Alberta, the Wild Rose. You mean 2012? 2012, 2011, yeah, 2012. 2012. The uh, the Wild Rose basically lost the election because they had candidates. Bozo eruption. They had bozo eruptions. Uh, yeah. Most famously, Alan Huntsberger. Yep. Uh, who, at that point, I somewhat shared a campaign office with, yes. loosely, um, who had his uh, infamous Lake of Lake Fire, of Fire yeah. comments about Lady Gaga or something to that effect. Um, but one of the broader issues of the party at that time was when they did their cam- candidate nominations, the party was still reasonably fringe, mm-hmm. and so it attracted fringe candidates. And That's there, putting it politely. There was... <laughs> There wasn't the level of vetting in place. And we're seeing today that even major parties, like every single major party still in every jurisdiction, struggles with candidates who have said uh, inappropriate things on social media yeah. or, well, you know, or... You know what the Bernie Party's going to get? They're going to get, uh, hello, uh, I'm running for the People's Party. and My name is uh, Warren Ear. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but so that that's my point, right, is... 
as far as I know, the People's Party has two employed staff. Um, no talent in terms of people who have run yeah. elections. No, and like already they're at attracting, a federal level. They're attracting literally the. Like, someone tweeted, I think they're all their candidates are going to be uh, twenty five pasty twenty five year olds who were kicked out of their campus conservative clubs <laughs> for being too annoying. Which to me sounds completely correct. And in fact, they've already garnered one like serious Pepe creep from uh, University of Calgary who was in fact kicked out of his campus conservative club for being too annoying. Uh, so good luck to them, I guess. They will get literally the worst people, as Paul Wells memorably put it, but later recanted. So, <laughs> I will repeat what he said and not recant it. The stupidest people on Twitter. So there you go. So I think they're going to get a lot of that. I don't think it's going to be all they get, but it's going to be a lot of what they get. Yes, I, I think it'll be a huge problem for them. Yes. We'll be playing the whack-a-mole yes. with I mean, like, hard outrageous right, candidates. Hard-right economic nihilism with, like, basically, like, Pepe borders is, like, not a combo that attracts great people, frankly. So, they're not bringing the best folks. So, there you go. All right, let's leave Maxime there. Okay, we will leave him there. Um, we want to talk about uh, the highest-rated show in... Uh, Canada these days, and that is, of course, the Doug Ford Show, Ontario Provincial Politics. Oof. Oof. So, yeah, a lot has happened uh, over, like, if we're doing a season recap here, it's been, like, a month, and uh, it already feels like I've aged 75 years. Can I just register my general complaint that I hate talking about Ontario politics? Yeah, because you you have such a disdain for the provincials. (laughs) It's just a real thing for you. Um... Yeah, so it's been kind of a clusterfuck of a month um, with Doug Ford. Let's see, what's happened literally since the last time we talked? So I think the appeal had already been, or sorry, the court, the Superior Court had already ruled that Bill 5 was unconstitutional on free expression grounds. Since the last time we talked? Since the last time we talked. No. No? The, The ruling had not even come out yet. So that's, since we talked, this has happened. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, you get it now. Okay. <laughs> so since we talked, that happened, and then uh, a court of appeal, and then they, they threatened to bring in uh, an identical bill with the notwithstanding clause appended to it. Yes. Um, well, not only did they threaten, they did. Yes, they did. Um, and then the Ontario Court of Appeal um, granted the province a stay, essentially. So overturning. Correct. Effectively overturning the the Superior Court ruling. So. Uh, that means that Ontario's or Toronto's municipal election will go ahead with uh, with 25 wards instead I mean, of 47 or whatever. Unless another appeal goes through, but yes. that is unlikely at this point, I think. And the city clerk, I think, made it clear that like they needed certainty within a very short time frame on what the election was going to look like. So that's probably going to be what happens. I think they have really not done themselves a lot of favors on this. I think you obviously do have the like diehard progressive conservatives who are very enthusiastic about it because it made the libs mad. Um, but overall, I think they were really willing to go to the absolute wall on this over something that, like, really... They hadn't run on. There was no particular urgency. That, like, there was no reason you couldn't just do it for the next municipal elections. There had been no study. There had been no consultation. There had been no real legislative process. They had completely sidestepped the, the whole committee study process. And, like, sure. it just felt illegitimate and been in a republicy at every step of the process. And I don't think most people like that like it just feels weird to them and like I, like i said the, the diehard fans will love it because it makes the other side mad but it does not rub people the right way and certainly like i i think i said this last time we, we discussed this bill is that it like people were kind of came into this government thinking okay doug ford is doug ford you know like he is who he is but 
there are adults in the room, like uh, Carolyn Mulroney, like Vic Fidelli, uh, that are going to sort of put a check on this and, and just cut the taxes and, you know, keep the sort of nonsense to a minimum. That has really not been the case so far. It's been like 90% nonsense. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. It, this probably really hurts them in Toronto. I think both the NDP and the Liberals will have this to point to come next election and say, Doug Ford doesn't care about you. And frankly, uh, Liberal and NDP candidates in other parts of the province can say, Doug Ford is completely obsessed with Toronto and doesn't care about, you know, Northern Ontario, about Southwestern Ontario, whatever, right? Like, I don't think they do themselves any favors here. Okay. Let's... That's my... Let's, that's my... Let's hold on and... You, you covered a lot of bases there. I did. I did cover... Uh, See, I let you get through your list. Yeah. You never let me get through my I, list. You, you got through your list. No, my, my list had, like, 20 points. You let me get through, like, two of my points. You got through a lot more than two points. Carry um, on. Okay. I think there was a number of things there that I would disagree with. Sure. Um, That's let, the point of the show. Let, let me, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Um, let me start off with a general preface that um, Toronto. 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 Um, not a city that I have any particular depth in. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I don't see the need for this policy right now. And I, I can appreciate that the process... Um, should have been a, a better process should have been followed that there wasn't necessarily the urgency and that all in all the optics of this tend to look like Doug Ford um, as premier going back to the lowly city councilors yes and uh, pushing them around yeah so, so all, all of that is bad um, there's questions of merit to the underlying policy great we agree let's let's put all of that in a box and then talk about everything else that happened um so the judge's decision was horrendous the ontario uh, superior court yes yes i personally agree with that like i think the bill was bad but i and i as rare as it is for me to agree with Emmett mcfarlane i completely agree with him on basically like this is bad but this decision is also like speciously ruled basically yes yeah. i thought he had a really good piece in mclean's where yes. he, he laid it all out and like I said, um, I very rarely agree with him, but... In a, in a much more articulate manner than I could. I, I think there is a point where if you look at something, um, there's one of these stupid rules or laws or whatever they're called that goes roughly... <laughs> no, no, no. One of these, these silly things. No, no, no. I'm talking about like Occam's razor, not like an okay. actual law. <laughs> <laughs> that goes anything that is sufficiently... Hanlon's razor. Is it Hanlon's? How's it anything, go? Anything, anything... Uh, never attribute... To malice, what is adequately explained by stupidity? No, no, I'm doing the opposite here. Oh, that anything with sufficient, uh, with a sufficient amount of stupidity is indistinguishable from malice. Oh, okay, I don't know. That is, one. Is That's a, sort of a marriage of clerks, third law, and Hamlin's <laughs> razor. That I'm not familiar with. It's like roughly what I see in this court decision. That yeah. like either this judge has virtually no business uh, ruling on charter matters, or this was a judge who was inclined to follow his political beliefs yeah. uh, and weave them into a genuinely novel interpretation of Section 2B. Yeah. I, um, can I, I give you my opinion on that? Please. I think that, that you're... I think that that's the case. I think that basically this was... Okay, so law is a guild in Canada where every, every, every part of it is very chummy with every other part because uh, they all have to work together. And they're... I, not, they're not liberal capital L, but they're liberal small L. 
Like, they're, they're people of a certain cast of mind who are very obsessed with rules, uh, very obsessed with niceties. And for them, Doug Ford is an ogre, and I think, like, a fuck ogre, if you will. Um, <laughs> Stock has <that's> gone. <laughs> and well, I retired it. But, um, and I think for them, this was frankly the legal guild just giving a nice little slap in the face to a premier they think is kind of gross, right? Like, I think that's frankly what it is. So, and I think the Ontario Court of Appeal, as you're going, as you probably also agree, basically was like that's us thinking he's gross is like really not adequate here. Yes, which is which is correct. Like I think that that is a correct interpretation. Yes, um, all of that I I tend to agree with. Um, I think that when it comes to the discussion of judicial activism, I think there is a conversation to be had, and I think the conversation to be had is greater than most lawyers would like but less so than perhaps was the case here so let me let me explain that when you have com i I take it and i look at comments like you can disagree with the judge but don't you can disagree with the judgment, but, like, don't question the judge's no, motives. No, that's bullshit. Absolutely not. Like, <laughs> I absolutely question the judge's motives. He's a person. He's a political actor. I, I don't think they're philosopher kings. No. I, I don't think they should be seen as demigods who are capable of perfect um, reason. Uh, I think they are fundamentally political actors. I think they err. I think they allow their political biases to inform their decision making. Yeah. I think that, that's I, I think when you look at the United States Supreme yeah. Court, it's sort of a chicken or the egg. Are all the Republicans of one judicial philosophy mm-hmm. and of all the Dems of another because they just stumbled into that by pure happenstance, or has their political um, beliefs shaped their judicial beliefs? Um, so I mean, or judicial like beliefs about interpretation of the law. Well, frankly, interpretation of the law is often just fucking inconsistent, and you can find precedents or like legal rationales for just about any conclusion you want like i think the way when we were talking about this when the first superior court decision came is this literally reads like he just justified the conclusion he had come to before and i was like yes that is a hundred percent like almost certainly the case because that's what judges do they know how they're going to rule on things like they have opinions and points of view and they find things to justify that so i think that this conversation can and should happen. Um, but I think in terms of how it was presented by Ford uh, was a bit more of the bull in the china shop. And when really? he Ford? Yeah. But the man is large. Um, <laughs> when he talked about, you know, judges being illegitimate. Yeah, I, I think that is where the line is crossed. Well, and also then simultaneously launching an appeal of the federal carbon tax. While yeah, decrying sure, sure, unelected sure, sure, judges, sure. Blah, yes, blah, yes, blah, yes, which yes. many people have pointed out. Yes. Personally, I think the hypocrisy arguments are completely overblown and kind of pointless. But let it be, let it be registered before no, noted for the record. Yes. Um, so I think that going so far as to attack the judiciary on sort of it's almost like attacking on the wrong things, attacking on them being appointed and making it seem as if appointed is illegitimate is not my contention here at no. all. It's rather that we have to embrace and accept and build in safeguards for 
judges being either biased or making the wrong decisions, and that's where things like Section 33 come out, yep. and they come out in very valid ways. Oh, yeah, we haven't really talked about that. Um, yeah, so Harold, uh, not Harold, Howard Anglin, of course, I, I mentioned his name on the podcast uh, many times, has not only been uh, very prolific in tweeting on this, but has uh, written a reasonably good piece for the C2C, which is one of the conservative, I think it's done by the Manning Center, yeah, um, publication slash emails, and that was widely circulated on Twitter. I mean, he talks about sort of the history of this and sort of how it uh, worked here, and he, he makes the pretty well articulated point that um, a lot of people say like Section Thirty Three should only be used the grandest of times, but in, in practical terms, it tends to be used in s- small issues. Well, Saskatchewan used it just earlier this year or perhaps late last year 2018, 2018. oh so it was this fact. year yeah. okay so that was on an issue about the catholic schools uh i don't remember quite specifically was, the of it but basically it would have severely affected non-catholics ability to attend catholic schools correct funding uh which would have been like kind of unfortunate because like a lot of places like people attend catholic schools despite not being catholic because it's like a parallel funded school system that you know offers sure. good schools and it would have been really bad so the government was like well that seems like despite the legal niceties of this, this is going to have a pretty catastrophic on-the-ground effect, and we're just going to nullify it, and in five years you can come back and ask us if this is a bad idea. So, in all, I don't want to get too far into the, the constitutional sure. um, discussion here. A lot of a lot of ink has been spilled. Um, we're, we're not necessarily the right people to go through and explain the whole history of the Constitution. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of history of the Constitution and what was the founder's intent, which is, you know... <laughs> An interesting well, you, can, con- you can call them up and ask them. An, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. an interesting conversation to suddenly be having. Um, not that it's really relevant. Oh no. no, one of one of the original premiers who agreed to this well, disapproves. I, mean, I, think like, it, it, I think it is important, right? In the sense that like it is a political compromise, right? I think no one no one would look at section thirty three and be like, this was something that came about strictly because of like once again, like strict legal reasonable principles. It was like we had to get something I, I, done at the end of the day. Sure, but it also could have been made by because of strict legal principles. There's the yeah. question of uh, supremacy of parliament that exists yeah. in other Westminster jurisdictions. I think Section 33 is an important nod to parliamentary supremacy, right? Like, I yeah. Think, yeah, like, it, it, I think they would agree with that, but I think it's it's like not unreasonable for the a the you know the people who like had a big hand in the negotiation of this to be like that's not really what we envisioned and I think like too bad you know, what's, I, no, what's no, the matter I, I don't think it's like a that should override I think it's something we should be like hmm, noted right like I think it's interesting and I think it's like noted yeah I think it's it's a noted thing right like I think it's like it, it gives us some context for what is essentially but like people are framing this as a legal thing right when I think ultimately it really should be framed as a political thing. And these political actors stepping in and to remind us that it was a political compromise done for political reasons is good for that very reason. So there you go. Anyways, I, I don't want to get too far into this particular conversation. I, I would have... We're not lawyers. Yes. We don't like lawyers. <laughs> La- lawyers are very fine people. Yeah, not really. I'm sure there are nice lawyers out there. So They're not sending their best. I think is what I would say about them. Laurent will always have issues with the laws. It's a guild, man. I think it's the laws are fine. It's it's the lawyers. Oh uh, yeah, I take a softer line than you on this. Mm-hmm. You love guilds. <laughs> I love guilds. Very pro guild. I, I hope to one day be a member of a guild. I mean, you kind of already are. Hmm. I think that's fair to say. Not really. You have a registry. I'm not registered. Oh, that's true. You're a journeyman. You're not quite a <laughs> member of the guild yet. No, Kevin Chan it, has it, beat you to it. It'd be apprentice. 
What if you're a registered journeyman? I mean, in our uh, oh, I see what you mean. Like you, master you, you, okay. depends depends how far this guild uh, yeah, yeah. guild ranking goes. How far this can help. Um, well, you're, in a lot of places in uh, in the Middle Ages, you have to be married to be a, a full member of a guild. So you you've already passed that milestone. There we go. Let's leave. Yeah. Uh, let's leave the section thirty-three. Fun facts, but Albrecht Durer. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Cons- let's leave the uh, the constitutional debate. There's been you know a million things written on this. Um, oh, I also just want to slam anyone who mentioned uh, disallowance because let's escalate a crisis. Oh Jesus is, Christ! Is that would have been a terrible a, idea, and I can't believe Toronto this, City Council asked for it. Yes. That was an, Frankly, okay. Can I can I get a last rant out on this? No. Oh. You're done. Okay. You're done. Tell me about the uh, the clam scam. The clam scam. Okay, so Dominic LeBlanc, uh, last week, there was a conflict interest commissioner report that came out about uh, the clam scam. So this was Dominic LeBlanc's role in assigning a... Uh, basically, they expropriated some surf clam quota. So for those not in the know, surf clam is a delicious clam that is uh, very popular in Asia, especially for sushi, though is readily available in Canada if you care to try it. Uh, since 1999, the surf clam quota in Canada has been 100% owned by Clearwater Foods, uh, which is based in Nova Scotia, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, or I'm sorry, I think it's like in Newfoundland. My mistake. And it doesn't really matter for the purposes of the story. At any rate, there you go. Um, so what happened was they expropriated part of this quota and gave it to a bid from, uh, or they solicited a bunch of bids basically on the conditions that they had to meet sort of normal fisheries and oceans criteria uh, and sort of be a consortium of First Nations and sort of indigenous-led groups, etc. There are a couple other minor criteria as well, but they don't really matter so much. Um, they received, I think, seven or eight bids. Uh, two of them were sort of non, like they, they didn't meet the criteria. And then the fisheries minister had the discretion uh, to choose among the rest. Uh, he chose one that was is five nations uh seafood uh or the five nations group um that was working with a guy called Gilles terrio uh who is dominic leblanc's wife's first cousin uh he's you know his he married into a very big new brunswick family fisheries politics in uh or fisheries in general in in the maritimes is, is not a big world um so inevitably you know when he chose this uh it you know it was a violation of the Conflict Interest Act, as um, the commissioner ultimately found, because basically uh, LeBlanc argued, uh, well, to step back in about the law here, as under the Conflict Interest Act, you're not allowed to place yourself in a conflict of interest, and to do that, you're, among other things, not allowed to give any sort of preference or good or advantage, um, advantage to relatives, friends, or family. Uh, he argued that because Terrio was not, um, he didn't see Terrio very often. He only sees him, you know, once every couple of years. Not a very close family member. He shouldn't count as a relative. Uh, Dion, Commissioner Dion's interpretation was that um, essentially relative included relative by affinity, as stated very explicitly in the act, and that he had basically no grounds not to like not to find him guilty. Basically, like it's just LeBlanc's argument was wrong. Uh, or at least insufficient, and that he did he was like just very plain text guilty. So he was he was found guilty of having improperly advanced the interests of his relative by affinity, uh, Gilles Terrio. Uh, this is I mean I think that was the correct decision. I also think it comes out to like not 
the huge scandal that people were kind of making it out to be. I mean, I think, okay, I'll, I'll say this in two parts. First is that it seems to me that it was, and seemed to the commissioner, that it was a reasonably qualified bid that should reasonably have been considered. I think that's fair. Uh, I think people have sort of quibbled with various elements of it, and frankly, I do not know enough to say if those quibbles are super valid or not, uh, but if people have very strong feelings about this, feel free to, to write in or to yell at us on Twitter. I'm, I'm open to being corrected. Um, but ultimately, what should have happened in this situation is the minister should not have made that decision. He, he placed himself in a situation where he was either, you know, granting this to a relative or not, and that looks like it would have maybe colored the decision from either end, right? So, like, the smart thing to do is just to defer it to your department, who are experts and can make this decision. I think in general, you, you like, I think ministries making decisions is important. But on something like this, where you do have a potential conflict of coming in, just let the departmental officials make it. It sure. just seems like it would have ducked a lot of issues. And at the same time, you have communities now that are not going to see the benefits of this quota uh, that they would have had otherwise because he didn't really want to just, like, recuse himself and not make this decision. So it, it sucks because it, like, really does have a harm to the communities that participated in this process and the communities to whom the quota was awarded because... You know, he didn't sort of dot his I's and cross his T's on his ethical side. Okay, so so hold on. Yes, that, that last point is what I will initially pick up on here. Yeah, go ahead. Is that if you see the name of someone you know, someone that you are, as a minister, someone that you are, even by marriage, um, yeah, like the, it the cousin of, and, and LeBlanc acknowledged this, uh, and it was stated as such in the commissioner's report in black and white that LeBlanc was fully aware of this individual. Yeah, because he'd met him even um, before he was a minister because he was, like, head of the National Fishermen's Union when Dominic LeBlanc's father was fisheries minister. So he was aware of this individual's participation in the bid. This wasn't something that came out of nowhere. No. Um, and at that point, he should have put down the dossier, handed it off to his chief, and said, I should, I, I should be separated from this. I yeah. don't want to have any decision-making say on this. And frankly, like, what's what's the benefit? Like, yeah. what's the risk-reward here? Yeah. Um, the other thing I know is I actually found the most surprising part of this entire thing. Um, when the commissioner talks about the choices being presented to the minister, um, he says that the department made no recommendation, that the department made a pros and con list of yeah. the different bids. Um, but that was it, which struck me as bizarre because knowing a department... To not give where when they have the opportunity to give a recommendation on something and they are in fact not giving a recommendation is incredibly strange in my opinion. Um, departments are known to give recommendations when offices would prefer they don't because <laughs> because recommendations served I mean to a degree to entrap a minister and to somewhat force them to make uh, to give more credence to departments. Um, yeah. recommendation or the department's preference because then if they make a decision it's against the recommendation of experts mm -hmm. quote unquote and that can be used against them if the documents are ever made public yeah through ATIP or otherwise although though you wouldn't see it depends yeah. it would be cabinet confidence or advice to minister depends it doesn't depend 
Depends. Carry on. No, these these documents do come out. No, they do come out, but you wouldn't see the recommendations. Trust me, I've a-tipped so, so, so many things. <laughs> Depends. Um, but all, all of that is to say, I, I was just surprised that the minister is put in this position of making a reasonably technical choice yeah. without... With with just general pros and cons list without a recommendation from the department. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a very like once again maritime fisheries thing. Well, I mean that's exactly what it is, right? The yeah. the fisheries industry is actually reasonably unique, in that you have ministers as as opposed to like most of the time that government hands out money. There is a fairly rigid process involving competing and then signing of terms and conditions, and it goes through Treasury Board and all of this. Yeah. But when you're talking about quota through fisheries and oceans, you're talking about quotas worth tens of millions of dollars. It's Twenty-five million in this case, over basically annually. Yeah. So yeah. T- tens of millions of dollars that are being given out entirely on the whim of the minister. Yeah. With no actual hard recommendation. Hard recommendation, and the minister is not necessarily an expert on surf clam. Um, bids nor any of the other fishery areas where this same process is followed. So it's basically the minister giving out something that's worth, you know, twenty-five million dollars a year. Yeah, ten, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of quota. Yeah, with very little oversight. And I, I think this is sort of vestigial where most places in government where perhaps this was once the case in giving out grants or giving out this, there are now very rigid processes in place. This appears to be one of the last places where substantial, substantial awards are being given with very little process. It's the wild least. Yeah, it very much yeah. is. Um, so that really struck me as you know something that needs a little more yeah. red tape around it. Frankly. So super quick final wrap up on two things. Uh, there are two elections happening real soon. Uh, New Brunswick provincial election oh, happening no. real soon. Uh, Looks like the liberals are probably going to hold on to their government, if not a majority. Uh, looks like the third parties are all doing relatively well with the Greens and People's Alliance in, or actually People's Alliance and Greens in third and fourth, respectively. The NDP trailing a little bit at fifth, sort of at like 12, like 13, 12, 10 percent all respectively. So that's like the highest third party proportions in a very, very long time, though the Confederation of Regions Party won official opposition in the 93 or 94 elections there so that was probably the biggest one ever but uh certainly as a aggregate vote share of third parties uh it's it's pretty large so that's kind of interesting in quebec uh as i mentioned earlier the coalition of near quebec uh led by francois legault has gone from a fairly commanding lead in the polls to either a very slight lead or pretty much dead heat depending on who you ask uh with the liberals with um the pq in a steady third and coalition of or sorry uh quebec solidaire at a pretty solid 17 percent a little below the pq's 20. so kind of tightening up there interesting i sort of figured that the cac would fall apart under scrutiny uh once again really called it on that one congratulations this to is, me i think this is your first right call in the entire 50 <laughs> 58 episodes it was, but no one else called it so i feel good um so yeah what? that is your elections update wait um, wait, yes, wait wait go ahead wait. i was just gonna say maybe we'll do a quebec thing more specifically once the after the election is over no that could be interesting no we won't okay we won't do that um, <laughs> final comments? Oh, I was just going to say, I can't believe we forgot this both in our pre-conversation and now, is uh, Leona Alislev? Alislev? Yeah. To be honest, I think everyone's done talking about it. I think whatever, it, I don't think it matters that much. We I, can... I think they're, 
are interesting things to be said about it. That, that may be the case. <laughs> but we're at over an hour. God damn. So perhaps the world will have to be deprived of our insights. We, we will save the discussion of Liana, I think, for next time. I think it suffices to say she's been reasonably unfairly maligned by the liberals in terms of, oh, did she not speak out enough beforehand and, and things along those lines. But we, we can have that discussion at, at another day. Very well. I, I, I will hold you to I that. think it will be basically just too far gone at that point, but... I mean, I think it was very telling. Mo- most of what us... we're recording on today yeah, is, is too I think it gone. was very telling that neither of us thought of it and it happened this week. So, no, I just that's that's my own fault. Yeah, I sh- people I, were probably should have. People were better. probably tearing out their hair for fifteen minutes of this episode, being like, "Oh, why are they talking about this? Surely it's coming soon." Yeah, don't worry, <laughs> don't worry. We'll we're get gonna... to it. And from now on, our episodes will be hopefully weekly. Hopefully. Um, and so we'll be a little less delayed on all of the news. Yeah, to the, be... summer, the summer is over, so no to excuses. Be, to be discussed. Hopefully, Monday or Sunday nights will sort of be the, yeah. the standard recording night. Hopefully. Um, one last point. Um, rate and review us on iTunes. I, I don't think I've said that in like 20 episodes. No, we haven't said that in quite a while. On uh, iTunes or whatever uh, podcasting app you uh, prefer. And uh, also send us something on Twitter, uh, either DM or publicly, if you have any questions, any topics you want to cover. Yeah. Um, if you want to mock Laurent for getting one prediction right in Woo! 58 episodes. I've gotten others right, too. Uh, I'm sure I have. Yeah. Let me know about all the predictions I got right over the course <laughs> of the run of the show, everyone. Uh, that'll do it for us. That'll do it for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Looking happy? Okay, great. Well, that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome back to Parliament. Bye-bye.